0: Welcome to another edition of Inside the Athlete's Mind. My name is David Struckel. I'm an assistant professor of communication at Hiram College. And with me, as always, Andrew White, professor of psychology and the coordinator of the sport management program at Hiram College. Andrew, good morning. Happy July 3rd. How are you?
1: Morning. I'm doing well. Happy July 3rd to you. Two days belated happy Canada Day. One day early. Happy Independence Day.
0: Wow. Wow. Covered it all. <laughs> all right, uh, this okay. Well, we're going to start off with the topic I've been wanting to address for, I guess, for a few weeks now. But it seems like wow, this story kept evolving and evolving. And I thought we got to give it some time to kind of, I guess, uh, stay in the media cycle for a while or wait till it kind of stalls for a little bit. But Bubba Wallace of NASCAR has been in the news for a while now. And going back to June 23rd at the Talladega Super Speedway, uh, a noose was found in his garage, and the FBI was involved. 15 FBI agents determined that a noose like rope pull in his garage had been in the garage since fall of 2019, long before Wallace's team was in that particular garage. 11 other garages had similar pull ropes though no others were tied in the same fashion. And NASCAR President Steve Phelps said NASCAR will be implementing sensitivity and unconscious bias training for all members of the industry, along with additional sweeps through garage areas and installation of additional cameras in all garages. And Bubba Wallace, the only black driver in NASCAR's top series, said he is relieved by the FBI's determining that no crime was committed in the hanging of a noose in his racetrack garage, but frustrated by some of the reaction and it seems like Bubba's getting a lot of pushback from people who are accusing him of staging this incident and saying it's fake and what have you. A very sensitive issue and just so much to address here of course as I just mentioned Bubba being the only black driver in NASCAR's top series. So he's going through a range of emotions and all that. And I have to say the one thing that was really encouraging and inspiring. Was the day I think a couple days after uh, this broke, uh, Bubba Wallace driving his car down to uh, down the one lane of NASCAR and seeing the flood of fellow NASCAR drivers in support of him and showing him that they support B- Bubba. So, Andrew, I, wherever you want to pick up with this and address the many issues uh, involving this situation, go ahead and take it.
1: Yeah, um, I mean there's there's a lot going on here and just at one level you have to wonder like, why? Like, why did somebody feel the need to tie that one rope as a noose? It, it doesn't seem functionally any better than other rope pulls for the garage. I, I don't really understand why that would happen. I'd be curious if this happens sporadically at other tracks as well or, or what what's really going on here. Uh, but it, it's great to see the solidarity among the drivers, everyone getting behind him saying, yep, we're, we're with him on this. And it just kind of goes to show that some things rise above the competitive nature of sport, right? These are social societal issues. They're human rights issues. And you can use sport as your vehicle to, uh, no pun intended, uh, to stand up for those, those things. And, it's great that the, the NASCAR top series drivers are doing this with Bubba Wallace in this case.
0: Right. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead.
1: Uh, no, that no, that, that's about it.
0: I, I was just going to follow that up with Bubba. and You mentioned using this as a platform. Uh, at that time, he wore a I Can't Breathe t-shirt and uh, pleaded for NASCAR to ban the sale of the Confederate flag and the presence of that symbol. Uh and two days later, NASCAR, in response, did indeed ban the flag. In a statement before before race in Virginia, NASCAR said, quote, the presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events runs contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive environment for all fans, our competitors, and our industry. Bringing people together around a love for racing and the community that it creates is what makes our fans and sports special. The display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties. So again, props to NASCAR for going above and beyond and just doing this, make this major step to demonstrate this and say, "Hey, uh, we're not accepting this. We want to make sure we're inclusive." So great move by NASCAR.
1: Yeah, and I think there are ties to a lot of different things here. So people saying that, oh, Bubba Wallace faked it and things like that—that that, that kind of brings back shades of the Jesse Smollett case uh last year or the year ago um i think it was january 2019 actually so it's been a while now uh where an actor faked as if he were uh, assaulted and it apparently was staged um kind of like a publicity stunt i guess and i don't know if people were feeding off of that and accusing bubble wallace of faking it but turns out bubble wasn't even the person who found that news Uh, So so it goes way beyond that, but it also connects to just these really big things going on in the United States at this time, Uh, you know, not having Confederate flags at NASCAR events or the properties and trying to remove that element of it from this one aspect of the sport uh, connects really well with things like taking down Confederate statues and um, you start to have different ideologies for certain fans and the actual athletes in the race. And sometimes fans say, no, I'm not going to support this anymore if uh, you drive a Black Lives Matter car or if everyone is uh, not allowed to fly a Confederate flag. Sometimes you, as an organization, a sport organization, you just have to say, okay, goodbye. Like, we are willing to not have your income come into our And we're going to do the right thing here. I'm glad NASCAR is working that way.
0: You know, this whole series of stories and events reminds me because I taught Sport in a Diverse Society class during the spring semester, and Magic Johnson came up uh, in the textbook reading because in 2004, NASCAR actually brought in Magic Johnson to help diversify efforts with NASCAR. And uh, among the initiatives that Magic Johnson was involved with at that time, he helped complete a selection of an executive steering committee for diversity. He assisted NASCAR with creating grassroots programs such as Drive for Diversity that identify and develop African-American, Hispanic, and women drivers and crew members. He helped NASCAR develop marketing programs that will increase the sports visibility in urban communities and raise awareness of career and competitive opportunities in motorsports. And he was to serve as an advisor to NASCAR Chief Operating Officer George Pine, who was day-to-day operational responsibilities for all aspects of diversity in NASCAR. And I'm curious, I would love to see a revisit of these initiatives done by NASCAR to see some kind of progress report or some kind of uh, update, because we're talking almost 20 years now since These steps were taken back in 2004 and to find out, hey, we still had Confederate flags up until 2020. We had this incident with a rope pull in the garage. Uh, We have one African American driver in NASCAR's top series. So I I would love to see some kind of status update on how these efforts are going.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And you hit that right on the head for where my head went with this. It seems like they brought in a consultant, probably several, with Magic Johnson, probably others, or hopefully others, and they outlined some goals, right? Really. He's trying to work with them for diversity to have more African-American, Hispanic, and women drivers and crew members, and they're just really working on diversity. And like you said, 16 years later, we're finally banning Confederate flags, and there's one black driver. So what were their goals out of this um, initiative they had? And why were those goals not evaluated until now, even if they are going to be evaluated now? I mean, that that's standard goal-setting principles. You need to evaluate them, make sure you're making progress. If not, something needs to change. Uh, so I would love to see those get revisited.
0: You know, in uh, relating to all these stories here, I uh, have to give some credit to the state of Mississippi, the legislature, legislature finally voting to get rid of the Confederate flag, uh, the, the portion of the Confederate flag that's on their state flag. So hopefully uh, a redesign is coming quickly uh, with their state flag.
1: Yeah, and that's been decades in the making.
0: Mm-hmm. This is Inside the Athlete's Mind. and My name is David Struckel, and I'm with Andrew White as we talk issues of Black Lives Matter and race issues. And I want to go to the NBA uh where they're gradually returning back to work and courts are being laid down in Disney and down in Florida. Um, But the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. uh, Yes, (laughs) is that in relation to the COVID-19 and all that kind of stuff, but there has been some debate as well as they were setting up the courts in Disney. And I guess Black Lives Matter was being put on some of the courts or what have you. And Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell uh, actually tag team up on some fan. And uh, one fan in particular did not like it. And Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell play for the Utah Jazz. And this one fan, and I'm not going to reveal the screen name or anything like this, he said, uh, if you paint BLM on the court, you have lost this Utah Jazz fan for life as he retweeted at various jazz players and team accounts, never again, won't even watch on TV gone like yesterday and Gobert tweeted back. If you don't like that black lives matter, then maybe you shouldn't watch us in the first place. And Donovan Mitchell responded with a brief tweet that basically said, bye, which is kind of like what you said just a few minutes ago that, Hey, if this is the way you are, we don't need you, you know?
1: Yeah. And I, it just, I don't know, that one person or those few people they're not going to make any sort of difference in terms of the bottom line of an NBA organization. It's fine if you want to make your take your stand. That's your right and it's also the right of the players and the teams to just not care if that's the stand you want to make. There's not really space for that in their business and again, good for them for saying that. Uh, that that doesn't seem like it was any sort of intentional conversation that Mitchell and Gobert had with the organization or anything like that. they're just you have your beliefs, we have ours don't care
0: the uh, The irony of the whole Gobert appearing in the sports news again uh, mm-hmm. months months ago, uh, right when everything went into quarantine, It was Rudy Gobert who, at a press conference when people were asking about the coronavirus. Wiped his hands and mouth like on the microphone on the table, and jokingly uh was i guess taunting the coronavirus and then ended up testing positive for it uh just the irony involved here, but good to see him with something positive here and making a stand along with the teammates so I have to give Rudy Gobert for uh redemption points here,
1: yeah, yeah, he's earned some redemption points there, and he he made good points to that. Uh, That former fan, I guess. If you don't think Black Lives Matter, maybe you shouldn't watch it in the first place. Absolutely. There's just not not a place for that.
0: You know, and and I think with the NBA returning, we are so starved and hungry for live action sports right now. Um, You know, I'm hoping for the best and hope no one uh, catches the virus or anything like that. Uh, But we are so starved right now for some kind of action that. I, I, I think people will tune in with no fans yeah, there or what been. have you. I, I think people are going to tune in in monster numbers.
1: There's been some uncertainty on if that comeback's going to happen or in what capacity. I just saw a report, I think it was yesterday, something like 25 of the 350 or so people who are going to be in that NBA bubble have already tested positive. Oh. And teams are supposed to start flying in in four days, I think it was July 7th, was when they're allowed to fly into Disney for that. So, you know, we've had two teams, I think, uh, the Brooklyn Nets and the Denver Nuggets have had to shut down their practice facility for a certain amount of times. They've varied uh, because too many people in their their travel cohort, I guess, um, tested positive. So they've got to essentially self-quarantine until that clears before they can train again and then make their way to Disney. So they are running into a lot of logistical issues with how to make this happen, and they want it to be a bubble. I get it, but it's also at Disney, and Disney employees may be coming in and out of that bubble, so all of a sudden it's not a bubble. So it's going to be interesting to see where we go in the next... At 27 days on this, and see if they actually able to get this going. But you're right. There's there's a lot of uh, a lot of demand to have some live sports. ESPN, TNT, they're probably chomping at the bit to get some of the uh, games on TV as well.
0: Indeed. And talking about the return of sports, the return of the National Women's Soccer League brought a tidal wave of player protests against racial injustice uh, last weekend, with an overwhelming majority of players kneeling during the national anthem. One of the most powerful images came when Chicago Red Stars players Casey Short and Julie Ertz knelt together. With Ertz holding Short in an emotional brace, photos of the moment documented another member of the Red Stars putting her hand on Short, but notably declining to kneel with the rest of the entire team. That player, forward Rachel Hill, took to Twitter uh, earlier this week to explain her decision, which she said, quote, did not come easily or without profound thought. And in a lengthy statement, Hill said she supported the message of the protests, but cited the military members of her family as why she chose not to kneel. Uh, She also mentioned having genuine conversations with Short and Ertz before and after the game. Conversations between the teammates were reportedly very authentic. And looking at the photo, and I share this with you, Andrew, we've we've looked at it, uh, Hill is standing with her left hand on Casey Short's shoulder. and it, It's an emotional picture, as Julie Ertz is kneeling with Short and has an arm around Short. And I think given what has been reported, this was handled well. It sounds like the team had a lot of heart-to-heart talks and conversations, and Rachel Hill has a Black Lives Matter shirt on, as can be seen in the photo. And in Hill's Hill's words, she said... I chose to stand because of what the flag inherently means to my military family members and me, but I 100% support my peers. Symbolically, I tried to show, with this, uh, show this with the placement of my hand on Casey's shoulder and bowing my head. I struggled but felt that these actions showed my truth, and in the end, I wanted to remain true to myself. If this wasn't clear, let my words and further actions be. I support the Black Lives Matter movement wholeheartedly. I also support and will do my part in fighting against the current inequality. As a white athlete, it is way past due for me to be diligently anti-racist. And looking at the picture, besides the fact that Hill has her hand on Casey's shoulder, you can see she's crying. This is obviously an emotional moment, and sounds like this team went, did a lot of soul searching, a lot of heart to heart talks, and this this is the byproduct byproduct of what we what we're seeing right now. And um, yeah. I, I think the team will come out better for it, as the, everything is out in the open and they're discussing this.
1: Yeah, and one thing that you and I had talked about is that. This kind of has those those shades of the Drew Brees story from a few weeks back, Uh, but she did the hard work. She had the difficult conversations in advance, so she talked to her teammates and many other people about this and about the different sides weighing on her and what would be the best course of action for her. She she worked out all of that in advance, and I think that's really important. And then she followed it up immediately with uh, her public statement. Uh, One thing that I just thought of, so we haven't talked about this, is uh, I kind of want to almost flip this on you a little bit and think about the journalistic side of it. Because this image came out, and they don't have fans in the stands. So it's not like everyone's there with cell phones like most events now. So presumably this image came from a journalist. And to me, I wonder – to what extent is this a journalist trying to get clicks and trying to have a story that generates interest or uh, at least gets people fired up and to what extent uh, do you think it was just genuinely trying to show that there are multiple different ways to stand with Black Lives Matter?
0: You know, that's a great question, Andrew, and I'm really curious with the spread of the coronavirus is what media access will be given to the media for these events. Um, as as we've discussed, the NBA <laughs> returning to play and to a you know almost a rape right, a playoff situation, usually for the NBA Finals and like for the Super Bowl, they're giving out thousands of credentials. So I'm guessing for the media, I'm almost wondering if they're restricting media access to maybe the media credentials for like the team uh, representatives to cover this, and or maybe just the okay. league. Uh, Yeah, but it's uh, I do say that because the image that you and I looked at that I shared in the Google document has, like, we can clearly see uh, the one athlete, Hill, standing along with her hand on the teammate's shoulder. I saw other images where Hill was kind of cropped out, and we just kind of saw someone standing next to her. So at first look at that image, you would be like, oh, who's the teammate that's standing? You know, who's doing that? And I thought, Kind of inaccurate. You have to kind of give people the entire picture, um, and I, I think that's going to be very um, important to remember that we need a lot of context when we put these stories out there. And you're right. Yeah, we have to be careful because as quickly as people can share, retweet, and get clicks, uh, we have to be careful with what images, what words get out there. Uh, because I, I think the story I'd quoted. It said uh, when one athlete was standing next to that person, okay, there's a reason why. (laughs) So uh, we we have to be careful with the words we choose and how we're saying them. So, yeah, I I think who's going to cover these uh, particular events? That's a great question, and who will get the access? Yeah. Yeah, as, as I said, I read reread what I had written or at least cut and pasted from the article. But notably, declining to kneel with the rest of the team as one athlete. It's like, okay, <laughs> it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> There's a reason why. Um, staying on the topic of soccer, and uh, which is the first version of football considered around the world. But you, you raised this article with me, and I'm glad you shared it with me because now we're going to talk about what it's like without fans in the stands. And um, going to Italy, uh, I guess there were two great premier soccer clubs in Italy. And the article said since 1935, these two have been rivals since way back when. And usually the games, the matches usually resolve or at least end in some kind of fan rioting or really bad. And the article had said that in 2007, there was a riot when a policeman was killed Uh, as he tried to break up a brawl among fans outside the stadium. And in the wake of these matches, the Italian government took a very big step It forced soccer teams uh, with deficient security standards at their stadiums to play their home games without fans. So now we have some case studies or some precedent to look at. So apart from improving security at games, there has happily been a sharp decrease in riots since these closed door matches inadvertently made a great contribution to social psychology, some studies here. So besides the lack of fans, which we've talked about this before, how does this this impact sport performance wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting the article to go here, but they were studying the effects on officiating. And so far they they long story short, the study found that with fans there, uh, the number of officials calls, yellow cards and red calls, typically favor or at least w- would go against the home team. So the home team would get would benefit from better officiating. Without fans, the study saw that it was more of an even playing field with the officiating calls. Um, and the writers of the article attributed this to groupthink or at least the influence of the crowd, saying it does impact, how referees call sporting events because they feed into that crowd hysteria. So, and talking before we started recording, this has some classic psychology uh, experiment rules, or at least roots to it with uh, Solomon Ash in his classic experiment involving the length of lines in, in little groupthink experiments.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, for the listeners who don't know much about that study, it's you put one real participant in a room with several people who are actually working with the researcher, you hold up one line, uh, just a length of line on a piece of paper, and then you hold up several other lines on another sheet of paper, and you basically say which one is the same length as this test line. If, uh, if the fake participants all say something that is just obviously the wrong answer. Like You're picking a line that's six inches longer than this test line. Often, you get the real participant actually giving a clearly incorrect answer
0: just because everyone else did. So they want to fit in. They they fall into that group think. So, with the results of this little experiment or study here, uh, since you've worked with basketball teams. So now if I'm a coach, I'll play armchair coach here for a second. Uh, I, I tell my players, all right, I don't want to hear you complain about any officiating because there's no fans here to influence things. We're totally even keel <laughs> because I, I know there's some players who have reputations for being crybabies and complaining about officials' calls. But if, if this holds true, <laughs> that without fans there that hey maybe things will be a little bit more even i and i i don't know if this holds true across sports or if we can generalize this study in any way
1: yeah um well generally as a coach uh, you don't want them dealing with the refs anyway that, that's uh that's task irrelevant information <laughs> for for a player they need to focus on the the task at hand and and uh playing the game uh, let let the coaches and, and the fans I guess deal with the refs uh, but yeah just it is interesting to see that that home field advantage in a sense just kind of diminished once the fans were no longer there and the article also pointed out that the home field or home court advantage used to exist much more in the NBA um uh, I think it was in the mid-70s, home teams were winning almost two-thirds of their games. Uh, But now it's closer to 50-50, so the training of referees and officials and umpires has improved is the only thing that I can think that's really causing this shift and helping them disengage from the world around them and focusing on the court or field that they're on.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think – and they have a tough job too. When, when I watch oh, yeah. basketball games and you've got – I think it's three officials who work NBA games. You could call loose ball fouls, especially going for rebounding, almost all the time. And when I see like the NBA, for instance, I, I think it's after every game they have what they call the last two-minute report. Where they'll break down the last two minutes of the game and see how many calls were missed or correctly called by the officials. They're under some very intense scrutiny, so they got to get it right.
1: Yeah, and the as a fan, I have thought about the last two-minute report. It's great to show accountability on the referees. It does have an effect on their ability to. Uh, have a role in playoff games and finals games and things like that. So there are some stakes for them there. Uh, But outside of that, there's really not a whole lot of accountability. In the last two-minute report, there could be some egregious mistakes, but they're not going to replay the game or anything like that. So where are the teeth for that? Uh, But um, it's more of a public shaming type of accountability there, which it's important. That's their career. A lot of professions you don't have – your mistakes really publicized like that. Mm -hmm.
0: This is Inside the Athlete's Mind. My name is David Strukel and with me is Andrew White. Andrew, we've covered a lot of ground today. Anything else to add?
1: No. uh, Just kind of the the standard thought right now is what on earth is going to happen in the next two weeks and I'm curious to see what we'll have to talk about. Yeah,
0: and I I have to throw in one last thought here and this is going back to last week. We had our Tech and Trek uh, conference online for Hiram College. We had some great featured speakers Dr. Brian Alexander, uh, who is a noted uh, educational trend expert, and Jeff Hoffman, who is the Priceline uh, founder. And um, Brian Alexander had mentioned during his uh, online speech that he addressed racial injustice. And he said, We in education, uh, we have an important role in this, and we have to take a part and be leaders in this movement. And relating that to a current event, Wayne County, which is not too far away from us uh, it's where Worcester is, College of Worcester and all that um, there was a they, Wayne county the Wayne County Fair had recently made the news because um, Worcester City schools had said they will not participate in the county fair as long as they were would sell the Confederate flag or would not ban the Confederate flag on any kind of uh, stuff materials at the county fairgrounds and so there was enough pushback from that and the Wayne County Fair actually said hey we heard you loud and clear we're going to ban the sale of the confederate flag or any imagery with the confederate flag so again props to Worcester City Schools for taking a stand and again proving the point that hey you know we all are educators. We have to teach everybody uh, about the sensitivity and the way people react and the way people feel. And we have to be aware of people's feelings.
1: Yeah. And I think that school district gets incredible credit for this. They didn't just stand idly by and uh, silently protest this. They,
0: they tried to uh, push for change and it worked. So credit to them. All right. Well, Andrew, we'll see you in two weeks. Until then, uh, we'll keep reading the newspapers and going online and seeing what's up. Yep. Sounds great. This has been Inside the Athlete's Mind. Thank you for listening.